Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be listening to this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition, episode 310 of our Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. And so today my reading is found in the book of John, chapter 5 and 6. So let's get into this. In the first nine verses of John chapter 5, we see Jesus coming to the pool of Bethesda, and there was a lame man there, a paralyzed man, who had been suffering for 38 years at this pool. And so Jesus comes on the Sabbath day, and it's interesting because the first thing Jesus asked him is, do you want to be healed? Interesting question. And so the man tells him, he says, well, I, you know, I guess I, I don't ever have anybody that can help me get there fast enough because they seem to believe that there was an angel or something that would stir the waters. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the man couldn't ever get to the pool in time. He's looking only at the natural. And so Jesus tells him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And this happens on the Sabbath day. So... Jesus tells him, go carry your bed and walk away free. Well, the religious leaders, they happen to find him. And they see him carrying his bed. And they get all upset about it because that was considered work on the Sabbath day. And they had laws about that. Now, they had added to God's law in the Torah over and over and over again. And they had added and all these rules that nobody... Um, them, but they sure were making everybody else try to follow them. So they get it all and you know, who who told you to go take your bed up? His name, you know. I don't know who that was. But then Jesus comes to him and Jesus finds him in the temple. Verse Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you have been made well. Sin no the worst thing come upon you. So apparently this man come upon him and he was made lame through a sin in his life. Now a willful rebellious sin of some kind. We don't have any idea what that was, but the way Jesus responded to him, it is it indicates that this particular ailment was, in fact, a result of some sinful, disobedient choice or whatever that this man had done. Occasionally, I mean, that can happen. Sickness can come about for that reason, and other types of ailments can hit us for that reason. Sometimes they're, they're natural causes. Sometimes they're spiritual. We, there's all kinds of reasons, and no one can judge that. And so we do not judge one another in terms of whether some illness or some ailment comes from any of those things. Only God knows that. But my point is that Jesus tells him, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The point he's making here is sin opens the door to the enemy to come in and to make it worse for you. Now, the Jews, it was Jesus who made him well. Now, I don't know if that was um, the, the thing that Jesus was trying to warn him not to do 
or not. We do not know any other information point forward. So we don't know if he did in fact abide by Jesus' warning or not. But after this man tells them who it is, then the Jews begin to persecute and seek to kill Jesus because he had done these things on the Sabbath, it says. So the Jews are making this big deal about the Sabbath. Yes, the Sabbath is a day of rest. Absolutely. God established it that way. But he did not add all these extra traditions and rules on it that make it so that if someone is in need, you can't help that person on the Sabbath day. You can't free that person. Jesus is teaching through the Gospels that people are more important than rules and regulation and religious duty. That's the point of what he's bringing out here. And so Jesus says in verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Now, in other words, they don't stop. They, they rested on the seventh, seventh day. God rested on the seventh day after making the world in the six days of Genesis 1 and 2 because his work was completed then, and the stage was set for the drama and the action of his beautiful redemption story to begin to unfold, beginning in Genesis chapter 3. So that's why he rested. It was settled. He was, his work had been completed. There is a rest in the Sabbath. But to, to make it so rigid that you can't heal and deliver people in the Sabbath, that took it way beyond what God intended. And I love it here when Jesus talks about how the Father's working and He is working. Our God, the Godhead, is El Olam, the eternal God. And I did a study on that recently in a Names of God called Run, Kitty, Run. And this was volume one, and we studied several of the names of God. And one of those that we studied in that series, uh, which is on the Facebook pages, is um, El Olam, the Eternal God. And it was interesting because I found in my studies and preparation for that, that He is the eternally, efficiently working one. And this is true. And that's why they keep working and their work is done. God in heaven, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the eternal God, the triune God, eternally, efficiently working always. So in verse 16 and 18, these religious leaders begin to seek how to kill Jesus, but he escapes from them then because it is not the right time. Hallelujah. I love in verse 19 through 23 how Jesus is talking about the Godhead and there's complete unity and oneness in it. I love how, for instance, in 19, he speaks about what he sees the Father do, talking about the Son. Uh, he will do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. In other words, there's a unity among the Godhead, the triune God. Hallelujah. In verse 24, he says this, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life 
and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Beautiful. Hallelujah. Everlasting life is only found in one place. It is only through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But not it will come to him to receive that. Yet everyone wants it. Because God says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has put eternity in our hearts. So we desire eternal life, but it's only found in one way and in one place. I found it interesting, 25 through 29, that this is actually prophetic of even one who would raise the dead. In that day, he some of these passages, chapter 5, really are prophetic of the coming resurrection of Christ when the dead in Christ sound of his shout. And, and you read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The Lord Jesus to meet his God. In verse 31 through 38, Jesus talks about how testify of Jesus. Hallelujah. Even the works that he does, because they are so mighty and miraculous, testify of him. I also found it interesting here to notice Jesus' witness of John the Baptist. Particularly, thirty-six, he talks about how he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But then he talks about, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Oh, yes, they do, because only the miracle-working God could do those miracles. Now, these are they which testify of me. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are of me. The scriptures he was talking about was the Old Testament. Jesus is all in the Old Testament. All of him. Hallelujah. And that's evident also. 45 and 46. Notice this. Do not think that I shall accuse you, Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So all in the Old Testament, it speaks of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice we move on to chapter 6. In verse 43, Jesus is prophetically speaking here, and he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. He's talking to the Jewish leadership, the Jews as a whole represented by their leaders in a national fashion. And this word is speaking prophetically of a coming one that we typically call the Antichrist. 
He might could better be called the pseudo-Christ or the false Christ. And he will be one that the Jewish people as a nation, as a whole, and the world, will they're going to fall for him in time to come. It's interesting because he's going to come in his own name. And these Jewish people, as well as the world in general, will receive him for a time and be deceived by this man called the Antichrist. Moving on to John chapter 6. In verses 1 through 14, we read about the feeding of the 5,000 again, and we see how Jesus uh, brings that to pass. But I want and nine, one of his disciples, Andrew, to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves of fish, but are they among And what I want to that sometimes we feel like we are the one, the five loaves and the two fish. We feel like the ones that, that and it look, we look at the calling of the Lord to reach the world with the gospel, the calling to make disciples. We look at the tasks that are before us that God has laid in our hearts for us to do. We feel like, but God, what are they? Who am I? among so much need. Who am I and how can I do anything of any, of any real value? And yet, what Jesus wanted them to do was to had him bless the did the was gave up his lunch and they brought the fire two fish to Jesus and Jesus then took it and made it enough. Made it so much more than enough. It says here that they ate as much as they wanted. And then it says in verse 12, so when they were filled gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Oh, God is a God of more than enough. It made me think of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. God is the God of more than enough. And he will give us more than even what we need. And then he said he wanted to remain. The fragments that remain, gather them up so that nothing is lost. Hallelujah. And so they gathered them up and they had way than enough. In the boat disciples comes walking on the and they see him he in the boat with the record and see where Peter you know says well Lord if it's really you let me come and so Peter gets out walks on the on the water for a while and then they all get in the boat and they come back to the Capernaum area to the Bethsaida area for this ministry now I want you to notice here beginning in verse 22, that on the following day, there are multitudes of people flocking, and they, they finally found out that, oh, so they find him. They come flocking him. In verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, get over here. Where, 
that endures to ever man will give you as God the Father has set his seal on him. So they're like, okay, well, what work do we have to do to get everlasting life? You see, beloved, sometimes we do something. We think that there is some work that we've got to complete, some perfect thing that we've got to do to earn salvation. And Jesus said, one work. And he tells us exactly what it is in verse 29. I love this verse. Jesus answered and said to them, the work of God. One thing, one thing only that you may do to obtain or that you must do to get eternal life. He says, this is the work of God, the one work that you believe in him whom he sent. In other words, that you believe in Jesus, whom God the Father has sent. That is the one thing. Salvation simply is afforded to us by faith, but it requires faith. Hallelujah. It requires faith. We must truly believe, and not just believe in who Jesus is. The devils believe and they tremble, but they're not saved. It's putting your faith in his finished work on your behalf and in your place. And that God accepts you, forgives and washes away all of your sin because you have given sincere faith in what Jesus has done for you. And you welcome his lordship and you welcome him as your savior and your Lord. Faith is required and salvation comes through that one work. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in him. So they go on and they say, well, yeah, that, that's good, but, but there's got to be something more. What sign? We got to have a sign. They wanted to see first and then believe later. And Jesus has to clear that up. And so they tell him, they say, well, well even Moses gave them the manna in the wilderness and Jesus comes back and he says, no, 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 you got it wrong. Moses didn't give it to them. God sent it from heaven and they had to go out and collect it. And then he uses that same idea. He takes them from what they started in Moses and he shows them how it speaks of him. This is one example of how the Old Testament testifies of Jesus because Jesus goes through this whole um, understanding and explanation them of how he is represented by that manna by that manna that was given in the wilderness now Jesus is the true bread from heaven hallelujah notice verse 38 through 40 it says I'm down from heaven do my own will. This is Jesus speaking. But me, this is the Father who sent me that of all he has given, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
I love this. Uh, John 5 and 6 are some of the, the most beautiful chapters in the book of John. I love them. John is a wonderful book. But I remember when I was teaching this one time before the Lord here, that this is Jesus' mandate. God the Father's mandate and the will of the Lord, that is that of all that the Father will give to him who will believe in him, accept him, not lose them, but they will, he will raise them up on that last day in the resurrection, and they will be raised up to eternal life. That is the mandate from the Father. And this ties with Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. Notice also in verse 14, 44, excuse me, not 14, 44, he says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Then he goes on and he talks about it's written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. That's found in Isaiah 54 verse 13. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So that ties us to what that passage is really all about. It's that we would learn of the Father about Jesus and we would see him for who he is and believe. Hallelujah. Then in verse um, 53 through 58, he starts talking about his um, flesh being the bread in a sense and, and his blood being the drink and that we've got to eat and drink of this. And it sounds really strange. Um, it's, you know, in the natural. He's not speaking in the natural. He is speaking about spiritual things. And the way we understand that and what that is, is we see it at the Last Supper in the last Passover Seder when Jesus raised up the matzah and said, this is my body. It's symbolic of my body that's broken for you because he was on his way to the cross where his body would be broken for us. And he raises the cup of redemption and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood because he was about to shed his blood for that. So the, the bread and the wine represent what Jesus has done for us in giving his flesh and his blood for us. And so we take communion to remember that. And it's all symbolic of what God was doing through Jesus and what he was willing to do. So Jesus fulfills his mandate from God by fulfilling the will of God and saving and accepting all those who will believe in him. And he will raise, he will raise them up at the last day, Jesus will do that. I apologize for that coming through. Then in verse 61 through 64, Jesus prophesies of his ascension. He also prophesies about the Holy Spirit coming on the day of, on the day of Pentecost in Acts and of Judas Iscariot who would betray him and others who will no longer follow him because they truly do not believe. He says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. He's not talking just about Judas, although it does clarify that he is including Judas in that. Judas ended up staying with him until the very last night, and then he betrayed him. 
even though his heart had turned away prior to that time. But we read on down in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. In other words, there were some that were convicted of what Jesus was talking about here, but they never really believed in him. And so they just turned away and um, didn't follow him from that point forward. And so Jesus says, hey, do you also want to go away? He turns to his 12 disciples. And I love this because Simon Peter gets it right this time. Verse 68, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we? You have the words of eternal life. Hallelujah. And then he goes on and he says, also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Make that same declaration and confession about Jesus that Peter just made in those verses. May the Lord bless you today and keep you, and may you be able to join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you in Jesus' name.